Hey, welcome to Steve McGrath's Basecraft. So at the moment, I'm um, working through this book, Reading in Basecliff by Jim Stinnett. And um, yeah, I kind of a different, have a different outlook on the whole reading uh, music thing. Um, I didn't learn how to do it only till the last few years um, properly. And um, I kind of, I don't think I'm ever going to be like a high level reader and be the guy that just gets the gigs where you get sheets thrown in front of you and then you can just read them straight away but um i still get a lot of a lot out of like practicing it so i do i, I start every practice session by doing a, like 15 minutes of reading and for me i kind of i'm finding that it really is good for my inner my inner pulse because I, I i only read with a metronome on and if i have to turn the metro down down really slow to, to be able to read a piece i'll do that but i, I never will um really read without having a metronome on and that kind of makes me like understand the subdivisions in a bar of music and really strengthens my internal rhythm so i would advise everyone kind of get stuck into some reading and um as jim senate would say used to say um the main most important thing for learning how to read is to have good material and uh i think this book is is excellent to start off with i've had a few reading books and they get way too challenging way too quickly so this one um is not really that hard at all so and it it also improves your technique no end with these a good book like this because uh it makes you move into the right hand position depending on what is written down so yeah you're learning your inner pulse is getting stronger and your technique is getting better as well as all the other stuff that comes with being able to read so yeah if you're if you don't read think about getting into it um it's really fun and i also find it really mindful because you your your mind can't really wonder if you have a metronome on and you're concentrating on reading the music and chunking as they call it that's when you read the first bar and you remember it and you move on to the next bar so yeah it actually is kind of mindful i know that word gets thrown around a lot these days but that's my two cents on it anyway. So yeah, today's guest is Anthony Wataraja. He's a Sri Lankan-born multi-instrumentalist, but he's best known as a bass player. And that's probably thanks to his YouTube channel where he explores advanced concepts of jazz, really, when it comes to playing electric bass. And um, yeah, I actually got lessons of Anthony last summer when the COVID thing picked off, uh, kicked off. Um, I wasn't practicing at all. I just wasn't inspired to do anything and i'm a huge fan of his channel already and i've learned a lot from watching his videos and i saw that he had a sale on his lessons so i said you know what fuck it i'll just do it i'll go for it so i did and i really enjoyed it and of course since i was spending the money on lessons i practiced i practiced a lot so it's kind of like being a teenager again because i used pay for my own lessons when i was a teenager and i practiced then too because i was like you know i'm paying for this i'm gonna make get use out of it um, yeah, so it was brilliant. Very advanced stuff we worked on, and um, it was definitely challenging for me. And um, I was a bit over my. It was, some of it went over my head, but when I rewatched the lessons, I was recording them all. Um, it kind of sunk in. So yeah, it was great to chat to Anthony again, and we we chatted about his style of teaching and where he's going with his career. Um, he was kind of doing a lot of gigs. He's currently based in Dubai, but now he's leaning more into being an educator. And uh, he just released his second solo album, Perennial, where he plays all the instruments. So be sure to check that out. I'm going to put all of Anthony's links in the description. And as usual, don't forget to like, share, subscribe, all that stuff. Actually, just and like, you know, you don't have to subscribe straight away. If this is your first time checking out the channel, just give me a like. And, uh, you know, come back next week if you like it and give me the old sub whenever you feel like it. Of course, I've got the new tees in the Basecraft shop, so just follow the link, pick one up. It's a really cool P-Base schematic um, t-shirt. And uh, yeah, see you in a minute. 
Cool, man. So it's great to see you again. Good. Been a while since we chatted. Yeah, been a minute. <laughs> yeah, I was um, walking my dog yesterday and I was listening to your album. Really, the new album, Perennial. Really cool. Oh, thanks, man. Yeah. It's it's kind of funny, like, um, when you listen, just to, our listening habits have changed because I, I, um, I listened to the first single when I watched it. You know, you put up a video there last week. And I enjoyed it, but I didn't. It didn't sink in. And then when I went and for the walk with the dog, I, w- I really got into that same song that I watched the video of. But when I was just listening, and that was all I was doing, just doing one task at a time, no distractions, apart from yeah. maybe picking up the dog's shit or whatever. <laughs> it was like right. class. Like yeah, I was loving it. I really liked the track um, transition, where it's kind of like it was. It's like a duet. Is that two bases duetting together? Is that what that track is? Yeah, it's two basses, and um, initially it was just supposed to be one bass, and I was supposed to do a solo just in that sense, but I thought it would be nice to just kind of bring in the second bass to play solos and then back off, you know, so yeah, that's two basses, yep. It's cool, I found a weird thing happened, I was like, uh, listening to that track, first time listening to it, so obviously I didn't know what was in it, and I could hear like other music or something in the background, and I was like that's weird what's is it a sample or is it a speech and i went on for ages like and then i realized <laughs> there was some kid cycling along beside me with a boom box around his neck and <laughs> whatever he was listening to was coming into my earphones I, I, but i didn't i didn't stop him to ask but it actually worked really well with your your music right well that's a miracle <laughs> so how did the process of the album go like was it a few years recording it or did you just get stuck in and do it over the spa- a short space of time? Well, I got stuck in and did it, I mean, from recording until mastering, it took just about three weeks. And, um, I mean, the music was ready for the longest time, but I tend to, I tend to record my scratch tracks all out. So it's pretty much the tracks for what it is, you know, and then... I finally sit down for the final recording process where I'm going to just go at it, get the sounds right. And then, um, yeah, I prefer to do that because if I let it drag over time, first of all, I might change my mind about something like my bass tone or the snare or, you know, small details like that. So mm. I don't give that space. So I try to do it in a short amount of time. Yeah. Yeah. It has a very live kind of sound to it. Um, there's some real nice kind of, bits that probably wouldn't happen if you didn't do it that way like if you were overthinking it there's some and it's you playing on all the instruments is it guitar bass everything yeah everything and i featured a, a good friend of mine on on the track track five ephemera uh rami luck is great bass player and good friend of mine and uh yeah even getting him on board was just a matter of having somebody who has that sound for that kind of a vibe i could emulate mm. it but i'd rather have him actually lay it down you know but um, yeah, as far as the live sounding element goes, I think I, because almost all the tracks with the exception of probably one where I had to punch in on the drums, everything else was one take first and only takes. Um, I kind of prefer that because I think it captures the essence of the song or the music and mm. anything else I try to do after that just never seems to work. Cool. So it was a pretty enjoyable process. Well, you weren't get freaking out over parts, you just did it and tried to forget about them yeah because 
what I started to realize is that the minute I go for take two or take three, I'm trying to emulate quite a bit of take one mm. in terms of the feel. And then I end up just sounding like I'm putting a lot more thought to it, which can be good, but it's usually bad, at least in this style of music. You know, it's different if I'm doing like, I don't know, hip hop or something. Mm. But this particular situation, it just needs to come out for what it is as quick as you can. So, yeah. And did you do that on the first album as well, the same process, or did you approach it different? Yeah. Yeah, the, I mean, the first album was extremely literal. Everything was one take. I didn't punch in anywhere. So if I if I screwed up, I would just start all over again. And I almost did that this time, but with that one particular song, I was just like, you know what, I'm just going to punch in because whatever I did prior to the screw up, I like it. Mm. So that was the first time I ever did that because usually that's, that's not my vibe, you know, to punch in, mm. although it's very convenient. Um, but yeah, that's the same thing I did with the first record, but I think... I refined the process with the second because um, there was a lot of mistakes I made with the first, you know, um, a lot of things I didn't get right from the production side, which I fixed with the second record. So, yeah, it only gets better over time. Yeah. And did that, was that kind of part of you maturing as a musician that you're able to just let stuff go and not just be really obsessed with getting them perfect or getting, would you, when you were younger, would you have been trying to get that perfect take like? When I was, I, I think, you know, when I think of perfection in, in the context of recording, I could look at it as just everything being spot on versus everything being just so immaculate in terms of accuracy, like 16th note down to the T. But a lot of the, the ways that I played on this particular record was very loose and I, it was tight when it had to be, which is something I probably wouldn't have agreed with two or three years ago. You know, so there is a good level of um, growth in that sense where I'm able to just let certain things be the way they are. Mm. If there are supposed to be eight notes and the eighth one didn't pop out, that's okay. It's fine, you know, because if I start to try to push that, make everything sound even, then I'm just, I don't know. It's, I think it defeats the purpose of playing an instrument, you know, because <laughs> yeah. I think that live element of one thing being louder than the other or a screw up or, you know, a good reference for me is um, Steve Gadd on Aja, where he accidentally hits the floor tom rim. And there were a lot of cats who transcribed that, and they were just like, man, I wonder what he was thinking when he <laughs> went for that. So deep. And then he just said it was, I, I didn't make the tom, and I made the rim, and it <laughs> stayed on the record, you know. So yeah. that put a lot of perspective saying, you know what, as long as you do everything else right with the right intentions, the outcome is always going to be pleasant. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, and I'd say you probably found since you were playing all the instruments, um, you, when you just did one take of say the drums, then when the bass came around, you didn't have to think about where will I leave space or play a lot more on the bass because exactly. that decision had been made already. Is that what happened? Yeah, because yeah, usually what I do is I track everything and then the drums at the end for the scratch tracks, and then I redo the guitar, bass, and the keys to the scratch drums. And then I get rid of the scratch drums and then the f the final process starts with me recording the final drums. So even when I do that, I would be playing to the scratch tracks, but I play probably 10 or 20 tiers above the scratch tracks. And then when I sit down to record bass, the similar process starts to happen. So with every instrument I record, I keep bumping it up. And as the last pieces come together, it just kind of forms a good measure for sound you know so that's why in like in certain tunes 
I wanted the drums to be as explosive as possible and in some just kind of take the back seat, you know, but then where the back seat is taken by the drums, the bass comes in the front. So that kind of uh, a chemistry really, you know, which I enjoy having with other musicians. But um, yeah, ever since I decided to make records this way, I've developed it this way, you know, so yeah, it's it, it helps make good choices basically by doing it this way for me yeah. at least. It's class though, and you you don't have any bother splitting your brain between drums, guitar, keys, bass. It's just kind of natural to you. Yeah, it's. I I think, I think the important thing is, it's like what we've spoken about this before. I've spoken about with many people is that, as, aside from technique, the main difference between guitar and bass is just function and technique. But the actual content of music is universal, you know. So, if you are able to get your hands around it on a technical level on a fundamental level you should be able to get by you know so um that's something i always kept in mind so that you know every time i pick up the guitar the bass completely becomes detached from my mind and my thought process so even that is evolving over time so yeah it's a fun process uh, and speaking of like music being kind of universal thing where your bass beginnings like wouldn't have been in like traditional western music was you i was reading like you started playing in church like at an early age like so and what kind of stuff would you be playing like and what instrument um so my first instrument was drums and uh in church we played a lot of gospel contemporary gospel music and gospel music particularly in the 90s even uh, groups like hill songs right which is quite popular in today's church music but Hill songs today is a lot more alternative, alternative rock kind of vibe. But in the 90s, they were straight up gospel, quite gospel, you know. So there was a lot of that. There was Kirk Franklin, um, Ron Cannoli. Like there's a lot of these old school gospel guys that I grew up listening and playing. And somewhere along the line, my brother was listening to the Black Album. <laughs> and... <laughs> Lars Ulrich, you were getting some. Uh, you were learning how to do that offbeat um, crash on the sim. Yeah, 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 that kind of stuff. But the thing is, even though I started playing drums, the guitar was what I really wanted to play. So I had a guitar at home, and then I heard the intro to "Wherever I May Roam," and I was just like, "I like that," you know. Mm. And then I ended up studying the whole record, and then I just got into straight up guitar, but purely Metallica, a lot of thrash, mm. quite a bit of Pantera. And I think that is, it's, I mean, if people pay close attention to the way I play, I think it's pretty evident that's where I come from, that old school metal, because I always tell the people to play metal, man, if you have no soul, there's just no way you're going to make it. If <laughs> if you don't really put your heart and soul and gut into it, mm -hmm. it's just not going to work, you know? And then you look at the more contemporary jazz cats who've got everything down but death. And that's why even with some of my students who are learning jazz soloing and stuff like that, I'm like, hey, why don't you learn the solo to nothing else matters, you know? Mm. It's a simple, simple what, eight-bar solo-ish. But man, it, it's such a good school of yeah. feel and blues and vibe. So, yeah, I started with that in in church. However, um, on in parallel, in, in school, I studied in an Indian international school out here in the Middle East. And I think I was about seven when... I had to sign up to study Indian classical music, Carnatic music. And in that, I was doing voice, which was fun, but difficult. 
so I couldn't appreciate it then as a kid because it's just it's just it's super intense, you know. Is that conical? Um, is it that that kind of um, yeah. spoken rhythm thing? Yeah, exa- I mean, there's that that you study. You study ragas. You study your scales. You know the sarigamapadanisas, conical as well. Conical is just one element of rhythm within a whole world of um, elements in Carnatic music. And um, yeah, so studying that as a kid, it was hard. But I think a lot of a lot of it indirectly rubbed off on me, and has been a main driving force in terms of rhythm in my music. You know. So I tend to put together ideas just just based on how I hear something, but then at the end of it, I'm like, oh, I'm left with a section of twenty one sixteen, but that was never the thought process. For instance, you know, mm. so it was these three things: it was the Indian classical music, gospel, and then heavy metal. That's what I kind of grew up with and juggled with up until I went to music college, and then people are like, hey, Jaco, Jaco, weather report. I'm like, what what is this? I never heard of this, you know. And then I watched Teen Dan, I was just like, whoa. <laughs> that is so cool, you know. Yeah, well, you never would have and heard anyone else playing the bass like that before you heard weather yeah. report. It's so different. Yeah, exactly. Bass players, as far as I'm concerned, for me were you know Cliff Burton, um, Ryan Martini from Mudvayne. I love him. Um, and what's his face from Corn Fieldy? Uh, you know, I, I love. I don't yeah, like bass uh, his tone. Is is kind of marmite though on the bass, like. Like he does cool right. rit- rhythms, but the tone can be a bit strange for me. Like, yeah, yeah the tone tonally is strange, but I dug his vibe and I dug the presence, you know. Mm. So that was big thing for me, like as far as good bass players go. And then I heard Jaco, I'm just like, what the hell is this? And then I heard him playing Hendrix. What is that? Um, what's that? Oh, song? third, third stone from the sun, third rock from the sun. Is this third stone from the sun? Yeah, yeah. And I heard that, I was just like, and then when he just goes nuts with the overdrive, I was just like, hey, I dig this guy because he's got soul. Like, quite you know, metal. Yeah, the soul and there's a bit of this edgy, on the edge, crumbly, just such so much vibe to it. And then I got into Jaco heavily and that's when I started playing bass. And through that, I got into Weather Report and... Um, Eventually, from there, I started to just look into that fusion era, you know, and then I got into uh, Return to Forever for a bit, and then Mahavishnu Orchestra, you know, and then through that, I started checking out, you know, Jonas Helberg and a whole bunch of other bass players. Mm. So, it started to open up my mind because I started to realize why I dug heavy metal and gospel music for that matter is because it's, there's so much emotions to it. It's bound by emotions primarily. And... When I heard like this fusion of jazz and then eventually starting to get into like more straight ahead stuff and Coltrane and all that, I started to hear that wall of sound that I was hearing on Cowboys from Hell from Pantera, for instance, mm. but just sonically different, yeah. expressed differently, but still coming at you the same way, you know? So that's why I started to resonate with with jazz and then eventually other styles of music within that idiom. But it was never because I was in music college and that's the thing to do, you know, because mm-hmm. a lot of guys, fortunately, go into college and they're like, yeah, I'm in college and uh, I was told I need to learn jazz harmony. And I'm like, who told you that? <laughs> yeah. It's not a, not a rule. If I mean, you could study it for the sake of studying it to, you know, get your papers, but mm. it doesn't have to define your music. It doesn't no. have to define you musically. So, yeah, I just... Again, everything was based off of emotions and then whatever else happened after that was just me taking it a step further to try to further study it or understand it. Yeah. 
and um, I was listening to your album. There's some kind of, that track we were talking about kind of sounded like the Liquid Tension Experiment. Did you ever hear that band? It's like Dream Theater. Yeah, yeah. So, so your your influences, yeah, yeah. the metal stuff is still coming out, even though you're kind of have been doing the jazz thing for the last good few years. Like, yeah, yeah, it's because um, you know Liquid Tension Experiment, and then there's one. I mean, there's a couple of Dream Theater albums that till date I kind of know it inside out one is Train of Thought which I think they released in 2003 and the other one was the last one with Portnoy I'm a big Portnoy nut I love mm. Portnoy um, what I love about him is his ability to just make everything flow with his vibe like you listen to Dance of Eternity no one's going to sit and figure out 128 time signature changes but he just the way he just laid things out was just like yeah it's just that you know he made it feel simple mm. So, yeah, in terms of the, the, the influences of the metal music, as far as I'm concerned, it's it's definitely there for those who have the ear to pick it out. That track is quite evident because there's, there's no melody. It's just a bunch of riffs and a couple of sections. And honestly, I could even throw in a breakdown there somewhere and <laughs> make it work, you know? <laughs> Halftime, um, make it really heavy. <laughs> yeah, really heavy. Bring in a fourth guitar, I don't know, with a low F sharp or something. Uh, <laughs> Honestly, after putting out that song, I even was just looking up online. I'm, I I might eventually buy an eight string guitar just just for this um, heck of trying it out and experimenting. You know, what gauge is on an eight string? Is it like a almost like a bass when you get to the top string? In how yeah, thick the like, string is, like it's like a bass A string, if I'm not mistaken. That's how thick it would get. Um, and of course, getting strings for that and all is going to be tricky, but. Um, yeah, as as I was working on this record, I started going through my... I have this timely Meshuga trip that I go through where I just only listen to them. Mm. And specifically with their new guitar player, you know, um, Per uh, Nilsson. Um, I, was, I, I was just astonished when I saw a video of him playing through a Pat Metheny tune and I was just like, wow, okay. <laughs> I dig the versatility, you know. Mm. But... But then you look at the choices these people make. It's like, you know, you could play a gazillion notes if you wanted to, but then one track has like three, four notes, but it grooves like nobody's business. And they're able to just say so much by saying so little. So I think I'm slowly, slowly heading in that direction where I like that approach where I can say a lot without having to say much. And then try to really infuse that into a more improv situation, you know. So one thing that's quite different on this record as opposed to the first is that um, there, there's not a, too many melodies. There's not a lot of flying melodies for sure. Um, very simple stuff, very vocal melodies. And um, that's about it. But there's a lot of hooks. And mm. the hook, the way I come up with them is purely based off of riffs, you know. If I, if I think of Meshuga track or Metallica or Megadeth even, like, there's just hooks. You play a couple of notes of that opening riff, everybody knows what song it is and everybody's ready to rock out, you know? So that that vibe, I think, is definitely start to, starting to become more evident in the way I'm writing too. So, And it's something I'm quite open to and I really dig, yeah. Uh, is that is releasing the album something that really drives you? Because I, I, we'll get on to your like education and your YouTube channel and all that stuff, but is that like one of your main things that gets you up in the morning and kind of, gives you some kind of drive get releasing your own music yeah you know i think um 
it's for me. I mean, obviously, it's not about making money because you 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 make. You must have made like point seven zero zero seven cent from my stream when I was walking the dog. (laughs) So it's like you know, there's no financial goal here. In fact, if you want your music to reach out even further, you're just going to put in more money than you're going to make. That's the reality of it. But for me, I think ultimately it's just a culmination of my growth and journey in music. That's why I do it. And I'm very, very passionate and driven to keep doing it because even... Because I just realized putting out album number one was a great feeling, but putting out two was a greater feeling because it's so hard to follow up on something you've already done once, especially when it's original music, you know? So when I put it out, it's like, like, okay, it's giving me more purpose and more ideas, in fact, for the next record and what kind of a direction I want to go in and how am I going to do it this time differently or maybe I'm going to have more guest musicians, you know? Mm -hmm. I have this idea of having a record with a different bass player on every track, guys that I like and admire in today's era. And write to them to to bring out their maximum you know so it's just inspiring a whole bunch of ideas but on the flip side one of the things that really drives me to put out original music is also that i really want to put my money where my mouth is as far as what i educate people on you know when people ask me and they're trying to understand something like metric modulation rhythmically speaking now, I did not write that track with that in mind. I had a riff, and I was just like, hey, I could just change the groove. And that's exactly what I did. And that is metric modulation, fundamentally speaking. So it's not about trying to prove a point, but I want people to understand that whatever I share and talk about are things that I have exercised or continue to exercise till date. It's not just me trying to add to the um, countless videos that's already there on YouTube mm. for base education anything like that but um, yeah I just feel like if anybody puts their mind to it they don't only have to do one thing you could teach you could write you could produce you know you could you could do a whole array of things and for me I think these are the two places where I find my biggest strengths is teaching and writing music Mm. and I also love to work with other people to write or to produce arrange but I don't do that as often as I would like to, but um, I think if I get go down that road, it can get messy for the stuff I do for myself. But yeah, a simple answer would be, yeah, it just drives me more and more to put out more and to write more, just to sit and write. And it's funny because people ask me, man, you don't have any financial returns. How are you even motivated to write? And that's when it just hit me. I'm like, you know, actually, besides the expense of mixing and mastering, putting out albums it doesn't cost anything no if you're doing everything yourself definitely not like if you're exactly for me it doesn't cost a thing and my second record was done entirely right where i'm sitting you know um and i mixed it myself too so i saved a lot but i i sat down with mixing and i started practicing mixing on like all kinds of random projects i could think of and find for through the whole of 2020 because I already made up my mind hey this next record I got to mix it Mm. and so in terms of actual cost for me to put keep putting out records every year if I had to it's not going to be much unless I change gear and do stuff but even that I can source that I can finance that from teaching or the odd gigs if that is even a word today (laughs) (laughs) but um 
Yeah, so it's it's basically I think I look at it like an investment plan for people to remember me mm. when I'm not around. You know, that's 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 the primary motive the for legacy, me. like exactly. And in fact, it's funny. I, I I distributed my record through DistroKid, and they have this option called Leave a Legacy. You just pay forty nine bucks once, and then your album stay online even after you die. And I'm just like, great. Oh. You know, let's stick to that. Okay, that's deadly. Yeah, I love that. And I mean, of course, it sounds quite depressing too at the same time, but <laughs> I think essentially that's what it is. You know, you're trying to leave behind something. Why do I put out videos? Why are you doing this? Mm. You're creating content, but you're leaving material for people to look at now and forever. That's yeah. that's the whole idea of why we do these things. So, um, And I think that really motivates me. That really keeps me on my feet really helps me keep myself in check in every aspect of you know my play my playing my writing and everything and um yeah it's just all in all out you know yeah i feel the same like when i started the podcast i was kind of like what i i just wanted basically i wanted to interview people who don't get interviewed as often because there's 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 too many podcasts in the world as there is but nearly everyone who's been on my podcast has never been interviewed before. So it's like a time capsule, especially with the Irish guys. So it's the same, like, I don't want to make stuff that you put it up one week on YouTube, a bunch of people watch it, and then no one ever watches again. All my videos are getting hits the whole time because people want to see these interviews because there's nowhere else to see these guys talking. So it's a similar kind of thing, like. Yeah, you want to give people what they want, but at the same time, you're also giving them what they deserve in a way. Mm. what they deserve to watch listen to because i think we live in an era where disservice is at its peak you know you could i mean i don't not to name anybody but you could sign up for lessons elsewhere or you could subscribe to a creator and stuff like that but what are you actually gaining at the end of the day what do you actually learn what do you what what would inspire you from just exposing yourself to watching a video or listening to a track or something you know mm. so I think I because th- even when you mentioned your ideas before you started the podcast, and I was just like, "Hey, that's a good one," because not only because you're exposing people who just nobody would be able to find anything about in terms of what they have done or what they have do, who they are, but it it sets you apart in terms of the content you make, you know. So mm. that I mean, and again, it's not like to label somebody and say this is the this is that guy, this is the podcast guy, and this is the slap bass guy, but there's a little more depth to it than that, you know. So it's like it's it's something I really appreciate and support. So yeah, good on you, man. Well, yeah. Of course, before I started the podcast, I was kind of at a loss at the start of 2020, and I I did lessons with you, like so you put up like an ad you were doing, like I think this was the start of the whole COVID thing, and we were all kind of confused, and you were like. I need a lot of students. I've got no gigs. And I was like, I need to do like push the bass playing forward. So I got lessons with you and um, really enjoyed the lessons. Like, and you definitely do practice what you preach. Like you, you were getting your ideas across, but it was kind of, you know, it was high stuff, like with the harmony and the rhythm. And is that you've kind of taken a direction now with your career? Well, the gigs are gone anyway, so you're kind of forced to. Your teaching is your main thing now, and then you're doing gigs and the writing. Is that where you're going with it? Yeah, you know, it's funny because that's where I wanted to go for the last four years-ish. I wanted to be in a position where I'm teaching primarily and then playing just because I want to play. 
Um, <clears throat> however, it's hard because if you are to financially equate it, if I let's say out here in Dubai, if I want to make six hundred bucks, I could do one gig, or I can teach a bunch of lessons, which might not be in a single day, but probably spread through the week. So it's like on that front, in terms of math, that's why people lean towards gigging if they can, because you could earn more. Mm. But that market has always been so volatile, and COVID made it such a reality in terms of what it truly is. It's just unstable. That's what it is. So I was always prepared mentally and psychologically, emotionally, even physically, to just let go of gigging and teach and i enjoy teaching so i was thinking why not so 2020 gave me that opportunity to really explore it and um i remember towards the end of 2020 there was these there were these jazz gigs that were happening here they called me to play five weekends and i kid you not the second weekend i was already bored <laughs> good gig though yeah good good cat good music standards and stuff but i did it once i don't want to do it again you know that's what started running in my mind mm. I was just like, yeah, but no, the money is great. I'm like, yeah, but how much money do I really need? Yeah. You know, so the, the, this whole thing taught me to really understand and man manage my finances. Something as simple as that, you know, like it's always good to have extra cash. No one's going to say no. But what you need to survive versus what you need and what you need to live comfortably and actually save. And I like to be there. But then there are cats that keep going down that road. You know, they'd be like, yeah, but I want to make 20,000 bucks gigging. Yeah, cool. And then you buy a base for $10,000 and then there are no gigs. It's like, it's like you know, like, does that make any sense? So, yeah, yeah I think, um, yeah, I have no shame in admitting that I have turned to teaching full-time um, because, of course, that's the only thing left to do. Well, it's sustainable kind of. as well. Like you, if you were to leave exactly. Dubai... You can go anywhere in the world now because you have your online presence, your online students. That's an amazing thing because uh, most uh, musicians who are doing well on the gigging scene, they're known in that town. But if you're to transport them to another country, like you, you have moved around a lot, their they're scene yeah. would be gone. They'd have no in way of getting gigs. So you can go anywhere and you have your students will follow you because of the internet. Yeah, it's, it's, it's actually crazy because... Um well, technically speaking, this is the fourth country I've lived in as a gigging musician. Um, my first was India. I was in India for quite a bit. Then I moved to Malaysia, Southeast Asia, back to the Middle East and Qatar, and then now here. Um, it's not easy. It's funny because even Qatar is like barely an hour away, and then I moved here. Musicians know each other, but it still took me a long time to crack through. And it's not even a scene. It's a bunch of cover gigs, and it still took me an insane amount of time. And it's not because I suck, but it's just, it's just the way it is. It's just so hard to network and get things going. But the interesting thing is also that because of being active online as an educator or, or whatever it is that I do, it it just helps me put little spots on the map that I'm able to even put together gigs if I need to locally, mm. you know, because I connect with so many musicians locally that um, I could just go down and play a bunch of gigs, you know, and... Um, that was actually what I was planning to do in the summer of 2020. I was going to do Europe with the same band, but primarily out of Germany and just hit the road. But these are cats that I've, with the exception of the drummer, these are cats I just knew from socializing online mm. and they saw me through my channel and then we connected oh, cool. and then I put the record. 
So it it really helps in terms of just that aspect of networking too, like for you to be able to travel and do things. Um, but yeah, the teaching aspect is very sustainable, but it's also a lot of work because yeah. from, from the point of view of teaching, because a lot of guys are like, hey man, so what do I need to do to teach? I'm like, you need a shitload of content. And by that, I mean a buckload. You need a lot, yeah, so especially if you have a student who's going to stick around for a bit. Well, some people are ferocious. Like I teach beginner base, but I have this one girl learning and she's unbelievable. Like, and one lesson plan she'll have done in 10 minutes. So <laughs> those students are a lot of work in a good way. You know, it's brilliant to have yeah. such a class student, but they just eat through your material. So you have to put so much work into getting ready for their lesson. Exactly. And in being in trying to being a step ahead of them, you start to grow too. Mm. So you not only become a better teacher, you become a better learner and you, you better expand all your vocabulary of educational content, you know? So, but it's not easy. It's really not easy. And at the same time, the tricky thing with teaching is that, okay, for instance, I've been working with this guitar player for well over a year. After a year, I've taken him back to lesson one because not because he's forgotten about it or I've forgotten about it, but I feel like, hey, to make more sense of lesson number 25, let's go back to one, you know? Mm -hmm. But that ability to see the material for what it is and to be able to go back and forth if there's a need or maybe completely re revise and review lesson two. So there's just, it's an insane amount of work and people think it's an easy thing to do and I'm just like, no, it's so, it's difficult. You know, well, especially for guys. You like, think about your students, though, like you're saying there, like you're, you see them as individuals, not just as, oh, here's John Doe coming on. I'll just do whatever. Yeah. You have an individual yeah. plan for each student. Yeah, exactly. I have an individual plan. Sometimes I get lucky when I have two students who are like on completely different continents, but they're on the same level. So it's like, okay, cool. I can kind of use the same material. But in general, if I'm talking about, say, Harmony, honestly, basic level i would have the same pdf or whatever i use but then i'll have to get it across to you a certain way versus somebody mm. else versus you know i just did a lesson earlier with a guy who just started playing bass in november and for <laughs> me that's a first that's brilliant right? that he because went to like a, this ferocious jazz bass player for lessons yeah it hopefully he doesn't and want to be able to play like that in the next six or seven months like <laughs> yeah so he but it's interesting because he came in and he's like look um, I've only been playing for so long. I have a decent understanding. I just want to be sure that I'm on the right track and I need somebody to keep an eye, you know, from the ground up. And then when he played a couple of scales and stuff, I'm like, okay, you know what? He's off to a good start. So here's a few other things that you can use to just enhance what you already have. And that's why I tell people I I like to work with beginners, but beginners who are open-minded, mm. not a guy who comes in. It's like, yeah, I've been playing for six months and then, yeah, I want to transcribe Donna Lee. It's like, yeah... No, yeah, <laughs> you know, it's not going to work. Here's the thing, though: you could easily do it, but you're not going to get anything out of it because mm. you won't understand what's going on. You will start thinking this chromatic sound is jazz, and then you start to just go down this rabbit hole, which is not really a rabbit hole. So it's like it can it can go either way, you know. So yeah, teaching is it's a lot of work. Yeah, to say the least. I think it suits your personality, though. So if anyone's thinking of signing up, you're very uh, chilled out and generous with your time. So, like, I use log on, and you just be, like, chilling out. And if the lesson went an extra 10 or 20 minutes, 
you were completely cool with it, which was de- was I thought was yeah. really nice. And so that that's why I probably teach and suit you as well, because you can stay at home and be Anthony who's being relaxed instead of being Anthony who's exactly. rushing to get to the gig on time and all that stuff. Yeah, and and because you know on gigs when I I have an issue when. You know, like, okay, when I teach, you know, people might sign up for 30 minutes, but I'll happily sit and spend 45, 50, an hour. I've done that before with other people too. Um, and it's not trying to me trying to paint myself in the image of me being a nice guy, but that's just how I am. I'd rather get something across, and especially if it's at the tip of my tongue, I really want to get it out for you to understand or anybody to understand and then be like, okay, do you, is that cool? You want me to explain it again? But then when you get to gigs and they're like, yeah, soundcheck's at 4 and you get there at 3.30 and then soundcheck starts at 6. And I'm just like, man, that's just a waste of time. I could yeah. have been at home. That's my first thought. <laughs> um, or I could have cooked a nice meal and had lunch instead of rushing lunch to make this 4 p.m. soundcheck. So it's like, you know, so I really focused on getting those kind of gigs out of my life. And then I started getting good gigs, which did not feel like a waste of time. But then in general... The amount of work, even when you think of it from the point of view of touring, for you to play a two-hour show, the amount of preparation that goes in, the travel time, the downtime, the the hotels, you know, the the dodgy hotels with the rats in the basement and <laughs> this and that, like you deal with all kinds of things. Which, you know, what it's a great experience. I won't deny it. Being on the road, I loved it. You know, doing stuff in the past, um, and I would love to tour again, playing my music, you know, just being on the road. But it's not something I would want to repeatedly put myself through. Whereas teaching online specifically, um, of course, I'm home. One thing, I love being home. Um, but I think it's it's vital to have that kind of a connection with somebody you're teaching or working with. Where it's not, it's not like I'm even trying to put any of my students at ease. This This is just the way I am when it comes to learning you know it's not about being on a i don't know military schedule or something you know it's like mm. if if it's going to take three lessons for somebody to understand what one note does against one chord so be it it's not going to rattle me it's not going to piss me off but what would piss me off is if the guy is unwilling to accept that he doesn't understand so there have been moments where i'd not flip out but i just run out of patience with some people i'm just like look you're not willing to understand your shortcomings so I can't work with that mm. you know that's when I become less chill and I'm like okay you know here's your money back or um, I wasted my time you know so in that kind of situation I tend to feel that but yeah otherwise because people mistake me to be extremely intense which I can be um, yeah but I'm quite chill I mean you know that yeah yeah <laughs> definitely I, I, I thought you were pretty similar to the way you come across on YouTube and the way you are like in person in the lessons so is that is that kind of your um vibe for your channel you just put up stuff because they're not like overly edited either your videos and it, you, you've got a really big following like so you didn't you seem to have found like we were talking about earlier a niche that's kind of your niche you're just yourself you don't overly edit them you just put them up and yeah, uh, I mean, is that is that conscious like to start like that um you know, it's funny because when I started the channel, man, my frame was shit. Um, I used to look so shit. And um, I didn't really put a lot of thought into visual aesthetics. I still don't. I think the main difference now probably is that the videos look better. I put an effort to just wearing pants, for instance. You know, those <laughs> kind of small things. I've done lessons in the past where I'm like, 
it's like I even look at it. I'm like, what am I even wearing? But I think that adds to my vibe because I don't want somebody to come into my channel and feel like I'm trying to be domineering because you feel that with a lot of channels mm -hmm. where I, I could take a simple idea or concept and I can explain it to you in the simplest way possible or I can take you for a big run which ensures that at the end of the day I know more than you do mm. you know which could be true but that is not how you teach that is not how you try to get somebody encouraged to practice or shed because when you think about it it's like a lot of the content on my channel is usually generally pretty advanced concepts. That's what I talk about a lot. And from the students that come and study with me privately through the channel, majority of them are between beginner to intermediate players. Actually, a lot of them don't understand polychords and stuff. But just from watching my videos, they are able to understand these things without it hurting their minds or heads or mm -hmm. making them feel inferior, you know. So I started to notice that about a year and a half into the channel, into me running the channel, that this vibe where I just make everyone feel at ease is what I need to maintain. And that is also probably why my channel hasn't grown the way it could have grown. Because in, in four years, to have 30,000, 31,000 subscribers is not a lot in comparison to a lot uh, of other channels. It is good, though, in fairness, because they're, like, cause they're yeah. like into it. You know? it's a, I, I'd say it's a community more than just followers so that that's what matters exactly. it, it it builds it builds a community but it also builds a community with the right mindset of people because at the end of the day if somebody can sit through a video of me saying why you possibly suck at base but not by telling you you suck but saying hey look you need to evaluate yourself if you started off on the wrong foot, you're going to end up on the wrong foot. You just can't, there's no stopping that mm. unless you correct it at the very beginning or some way halfway down the road, you know? So, uh, yeah, I think it took me a while to accept that this is my vibe in terms of production of videos and stuff, because, you know, I have a lot of friends and, um, family members would be like, Hey, but you know, you could, it could look a lot better. It could do this. And I'm like, I get it, you know, which basically means edited, very well presented an intro an outro, mm -hmm. and outro this and that. I mean, I tend to do some jokes or a face zoom frame, which at the moment when I'm editing, I'm like, yeah, I just feel like doing that for fun. Yeah. I'm you know? the same. I'm trying to find my niche as well. Like what well, I do like doing the editing, but I don't want to, I don't like spending three days making a video either. Like, so most of the, stuff you kind of do when you're editing just for the crack it's not as if you put a forethought into it like yeah it's not like you're working with a template yeah you know uh, like the last lesson i put up where i'm i spoke about practicing smart versus hard i was literally just sitting and practicing and i was just like you know what i'm going to shoot and then i just set up my camera here because i don't want to move you know so mm. like these kind of small things like it just helped maintain the chill vibe and it makes people feel comfortable, makes them cozy that they could approach me or they can just spend time on the channel and be aware, okay, I might not, like, as a viewer of the channel, I don't know a lot that I thought I knew, but hey, you know what? It is possible for me to know. Because predominantly mm -hmm. speaking, I am predominantly self-taught. I, yes, I went to college, but I did not understand shit. Even the way music education is presented in college is presented in such a way that this is the absolute whatever you do whatever you did is doesn't matter 
this is the one and only way. So, yeah, because, you know, it's funny because I asked most of my students, I was like, hey, what do you think about the channel or what do you just think about my vibe in general? And this is the most common response I got was, it's obvious I might know a lot, but I never put myself on a pedestal mm. and say, you know, that is the way and then have a nice big whiteboard and all like, no, no, I can't, I can't do that. Even if I tried to, I just can't because <laughs> it, it completely fights my personality, mm. you know? So yeah, I think it took me a while to accept that as my niche, but then small things, you know, getting good video lights or trying to set up my frame a little better, dress a little better for the videos, shoot well, but still, despite doing that, I, they're not heavily edited. You know, you could hear me breathe sometimes, you know, you, it's like, it's just as raw as I can keep it because I want people to feel comfortable more than intimidated by music. Yeah. I'm, just, so, I'm just smiling because when I started doing mine, my girlfriend was texting me going mad. She was like, the stadium in the video I was wearing had these shoes that were tied together with duct tape, masking tape, like had them all wrapped up, but they were really comfortable. <laughs> and I was just, I was wearing the sweatpants and everything. I was like, but who cares what I look like? I'm playing the bass, but I think it people actually do care if you're wearing like shoes that are falling apart. Maybe it distracts from what you're trying to say. Like, yeah, it's like I I remember watching this one video on my channel that I put up. I think about three years ago. I was talking about pentatonic scales, like the way Chikori uses it, and I'm wearing this. I don't know what the hell you could see my chest hair from a mile away, and I'm just like <laughs> disco. I'm. I'm amazed there are views and I had a big ass beard. And you had a colored beard, head. a dime bag kind of thing for a while. Yeah, it was that I, that period? Yeah. You know, I was actually about to go for purple and I'm so glad I did not. <laughs> and uh, I'm glad people still stuck around despite me doing all those things. You know, it's like, I mean, music is for the ears, music education or whatever it is. At the end of the day, you know, we want to hear stuff, we want to improve, but the visual element is undeniable. But I think to go all in there, and not the music is definitely a sin in my opinion. But mm. yeah, just me lately trying to put a little more effort into the way I just carry myself even. Small things like that, you know, it makes a big difference into the way people perceive you because I think that's the truth of today anyway. Everything's so visual. Everything's very visual. In fact, when I released the first uh, single off of the album, uh a lot of my friends were like, hey, nice video, and I'm glad you stuck to the shorts. And I'm just like, what is he on about? Then I realized the frame of me playing the piano, I'm wearing my Adidas shorts. And I'm just like, you know what? Yeah, that's fine. Missed that just, one. Just, yeah, just, I missed that one, but that's okay. You know, it's just, it's one of the one of the three Anthony's, so that, that works in that situation. But um, <laughs> that wasn't deliberate, you know? That was not me not giving a shit about how I looked, but it just, I was just on a clock, so I had to get it done. But... Um, but yeah, it's 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 tricky to find your niche and to stay consistent with it and evolve with it. That's the hard part. Yeah, uh, you're you're into like the fitness area. You're wearing your kind of Nike. Well, you were saying that your gym got cancelled today or something. But is that a new thing yeah. in your life, the fitness, or have you always tried to maintain your fitness as a musician as well, like as uh, physically? And you know, it kind of ties into being a musician. We, we we get into these eating habits on tour like it's it's so hard to eat on tour and then how do you stay fit when you're on a long tour like it, you kind of have to think about it yeah the 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 fitness thing right now is very recent as of the last year and a half yeah year and a half 
coming on two years. Um, but prior to that, prior to me getting into music college and all that stuff, I was very active as a kid in school. I was a basketball player, you know. I played in an amateur league locally in Bahrain. I was very physically active, and I broke a bunch of bones too. I've broken both my thumbs, my right <laughs> knee. Really? Um, Breaking your thumbs? How long? How does that happen? And how long does it take to heal? Uh, the thing is, I had a hairline fracture here, and this one was like a full-fledged fracture. And I was walking around with a cast like that <laughs> for a month and a half. Did um, it affect your slap base? <laughs> thumbs are like broken. Thankfully, at the time, I wasn't playing um, bass. So, yeah, I mean, there was a whole bunch of things. And I remember my mom saying, she's like, look, you want to do music or you want to do sports? You've got to pick your side because you, you're going to keep breaking shit the other way, mm. which is okay because that's a career in itself, right? You I, do sports. That injuries happen. I think you're accident prone because I played rugby from the age of like 6 to 18. And I never broke a single bone. And I played like a uh, oh, lot of matches and on one load of cups and tournaments and things never broke a single bone right okay yeah you're you're lucky because uh i mean playing basketball is weird sometimes yep. in the midst of the game because i remember how i broke this thumb because i was trying to stop the ball at the very last minute we were down two points and i stuck my hand out like that mm. and the ball just jammed right into my thumb so yeah anyway so i was quite active then but then once i got into music full-time i just was um, glued to my couch or chair you know so i um put on hideous amounts of weight and i remember back in april 2019 after i did the album launch concert of my first record the keys player a friend of mine here um kiwi guy hyron he's like we used to work together in malaysia years ago and he's always looked the same he doesn't age and he's very strong and fit you know and we were doing this gig where we had to take a flight of stairs that was not just stairs up but it was a spiral staircase i had to carry my amp up those stairs and i took my smallest amp and i was dying and he had a nord 88 key keyboard which weighs like it's like a coffin mm. and he just picked it up like it was nothing and he just walked up those stairs you know by the time i got up i was so beat i needed to have water i needed coffee <laughs> um and then i was just like man I'm not even that old to be yeah, feeling this way. This isn't right. Like. So I need to, yeah, I need to fix these things, you know. And then because of my knee issue, I couldn't exercise or do a lot of things. And that also led to weight gain. But eventually, once I got my mind into it, I started to fix my eating habits and then just started hitting the gym really hard, you know. And I dropped the ridic ridiculous amount of weight and I gained some of it back through 2020 because of uh, gyms being closed. And because of my injuries and also my... But we all... We kind of graze as well. Like when we're home this often, you're like, mm, I'll, I'll go into the kitchen. I'll nibble on something. Because you, you, you're yeah. not leaving the house. Like you're constantly nibbling on things. And for me, it's like because of my RSI on my left wrist, body weight training can be quite tricky for me. Like I have my good days where I could crank out 25 solid push-ups without any pain for, at a set. And there are days where I can barely do two just because my left wrist has just given up, you know. So body weight training was not an option and I was just starting to slack a little bit, but I didn't gain way too much because I lost about, I lost 20 kilos in total and I gained about eight of it back. Mm. And now I've dropped about two or three from that again because gyms have opened up here again. And, um, but even that, you know, small, small things like that, like, you know, because I've started to work out again regularly as of the last month, cycling when I can and stuff like that. 
but there are days where i just know my body's not up for it and today is one of those days that's why mm. i told you yeah i cancel my workout slot cuz now we have to book workout slots cuz of covid to yeah. maintain social but um you know it it not only affected me physically speaking in in terms of visual aesthetics or whatever but my ability to just remain calm has drastically gone up you know it just the way i'm able to process things and just handle situations even musically speaking um like you know simple things like the, some of the tracks that i put on this record if you hear the scratch track versions like the ones with the vocal melodies they were like i think i had like 15 layers at one point of the voice with four different voices including mine jacob collier coming through <laughs> yeah exactly i would just just went all out but i did that only because it's always easy to scale down once you mm. have added everything you know but the old me would not have given that the chance cuz it's like in the back of my head i knew i want to use one voice but i want to hear what it sounds like if i add more to it so just to be able to evaluate understand and make a choice you know i feel like the amount of physical activity one has in terms of exercise and maintaining a good lifestyle in that sense plays a huge role just in every just about everything you know my bass playing improved i had to fix a lot of my things technically speaking because my bass before was almost like a piano because of my belly it would stick out like that so it was so easy to play because i could just look at my fretboard yeah. at any time and as my thumb started to shrink it was just like oh shit i had to kind of fix that's my that's crazy right i never would have thought that would affect your but obviously it will like different you physically well, couldn't have the bass straight like yeah yeah cuz cuz the angle you know and cuz i always keep the bass to my right side so <laughs> i remember doing the first few gigs i'm just like man this is weird cuz the bass is a little down and now i have to just ev- evaluate and adjust make small adjustments happen um just my overall stamina for playing especially drums it improved drastically cuz before if i play three sets of 45 minutes i could do it but i would feel it at the end of the night mm. especially at um one of my favorite gigs in town here is um i used to play with a bunch of guys actually from ireland we used to play uh, mcgeddigans um i used to play drums and there were only two mics one for the kick and one overhead so i should just smash away <laughs> and we just playing like straight up rock um if i did that gig a year before i would have died mm. i would have blisters and what not but just being stronger physically allows me to muscle out things without any of the consequences of being sore the next day you know mm. so it definitely benefited my technique a lot across the board and uh, my ability to just process things a little more calm because that was one of my biggest issues in the past you know i was i still am a hothead but i have a lot more control over it now and hothead in the sense of there was there was a time where i would find a youtube video of a particular lesson which is completely shite and i'd be like man what is this guy doing and i would share it on my facebook and i would just be like this is what's <laughs> wrong with the world rent you know but now i'm just like even some of the comments i get on my channel man if i got those 3 years ago i would i would be off of youtube really? how, how do you deal against- with the trolls do you just ignore them and move on that or do you give them one give give back what you think like oof man it, it's it's tricky cuz some of the trolls are incredible like there's this is one guy who said i'm a huge fan but you're playing is so mundane and i'm just like <laughs> What are, you, what are you trying to say you know yeah, yeah. i mean you <laughs> you're a fan of what if you don't like the playing <laughs> yeah 
And I'm like, what are you a fan of? So I was just like, and he called me a bro. So that was my key point. I was just like, I just replied. I was like, hey, first of all, I'm not your bro. And second of all, I don't care. Um, but it was funny because it angered me. But then I was just like, is it even worth it? Mm. Like, what's the point? What's going to happen? Especially if I choose to get aggressive online, you know? Because yeah. that. And especially living in times of the cancel culture where anything can be used against you and then the next thing mm. you're just out of the game. So I've put a little more thought into the way I react to a lot of things online. Um, like, it's it's incredible because, yeah, like you need really high tolerance to be active online because the number of idiotic people you come across or comments and stuff like that is it's <laughs> just getting worse by the year, you know? Yeah. Well, the bigger your channel gets, the more good followers you yeah. get, and the more idiots you get as well. Yeah, I mean, there are there are there are followers who would make jokes in good spirit, and then there are guys who just. I remember one guy left a comment saying, I, "I'm I'm so bad, I need to practice even if I'm in the toilet." <laughs> and when I saw that comment, honestly, more than anger, I was just laughing because I'm like, "Man, that's such a creative comment," you know. <laughs> and I just remember replying saying, "Okay, man, I'll try this." But he kept going on, and that's when I lost it. I'm like, okay, you know what? I gave you the wiggle room to troll, and I said, okay, cool, thanks. And then now we're just going at it. So, okay, now that has to stop. So um, that's the good and bad about the internet, isn't it? Yeah. It gives access for everybody to just be themselves, but some people should just not be themselves. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, the people who are giving out don't have their own channels. They just like, I don't know, They maybe they don't feel good about themselves, so they just want to go on and... Slag someone else. It'd be hilarious if a big channel came on and slagged you. <laughs> that might be something then. You could have an argument then, the two of you together, like a discourse maybe. You know, I I, I, I remember seeing something online because I follow more than music, actually. I follow cooking channels a lot. I love cooking. So. Oh, really? Yeah. So there's two guys in particular. I've, um, I remember one guy did a reaction video to the other guy's video on oven-baked crispy french fries and one guy bettered the other recipe and um, they've always had they wouldn't see eye to eye on a lot of things but the mm. way they discussed their thoughts was just incredible because it was so mature respectful respectful of the differences and the indifferences so it's like mm. okay, you know we vibe here we don't vibe here and that is okay yeah but this is why i don't vibe this is why you don't vibe and people need to see that. And when people look at conversations like that, it's like it's like wow, okay, so there is healthy discourse is possible. Like exactly, it is very much possible to disagree on something without it having to be a ruckus. Mm. But in today's world, especially music, oh gosh, yeah, like I have a disagree. I, I was thinking, would it be funny if I had Janet Guizdal on, or or this Irish YouTuber? He like. The the Irish guy trolls trolls people clickbait. So I wanted to have him on. And maybe how would we have a healthy argument about? I don't think I don't like what he does. Like it's a bit, but maybe he can explain what he does and why he does it and say it's not clickbait. And Janik as well, he was giving out about Davy five hundred four and all and uh, Charles Burtwood saying they're ruining the base and all this, which I don't agree with. I think they're getting people playing the base. They're just having a bit of fun, like. I don't know, is it possible to have these healthy discourses when it comes to music? It's just not something that happens very often, is it? Like, It's, you know, it's it's really hard to say because 
I always tell people there's musicians and then there's bass players and drummers. Um, <laughs> just because in terms of intellect, we are right at the bottom of the barrel, you know. Mm. Um, it's ironic because we make the band. Yeah. But then when it comes to being intelligent, we just don't know how to do it. Um, you know, Davey 504 and these guys, are they an education channel? No. no. Does Davey say, hey, this is how we play over 2-5 using the altered scale? No. He's just having a good time. And he is probably directly responsible for a few million people knowing what the bass guitar actually is. Yeah, exactly. So if anything, if anything because of him, because I've had people come up to me, it's like, hey, that's the bass, right? Because, yeah, I've seen this guy on YouTube, Davey 504. I'm like, yep, that's the bass, man. That's better than somebody coming up to me and saying nice guitar, you know? Um, so while, again, I might disagree and agree with a lot of things that a lot of people do, whether it's Davey 504 or anybody else, mm. uh, I'm always up to have a rational conversation to yes. understand why one would disagree and one wouldn't. But a lot of musicians don't have that ability because, you know, I, I feel like when something doesn't sit well with you, it doesn't sit well with your ego more than anything else. Because at the end of the day, there is just no absolute truth in music. Mm. You know? Um in terms of, oh, to study harmony, you need to do this or you must. No, I've met people who don't know what a minor seven flat five is, but man, they can write some beautiful music. They play beautifully. They don't know anything. And then when these guys say, hey, man, I want to learn stuff, I'd be like, don't. Just stick to the way you're doing it, you know? Yeah. Let your ears be everything. But there might be somebody else who knows each and every aspect of harmony and bitonality, atonal music and quarter-tones and this and that, but then they can't even voice a C major, your standard C major on the electric guitar or acoustic guitar and sing Happy Birthday. Like, you can't do that. Like, you know, there's so many points I could mm -hmm. use to argue or shoot down somebody, but I never do it from the from one side, but I think generally with bass players in particular when anyone tries to pick an argument or pick up fight it always comes from just looking at it from one side mm. you know like for instance the best example i can think of is how a lot of bass players trash jeff berlin okay and some of his comments have kind of triggered people i suppose is the word that they use these days he's he's definitely um he's tickled a lot of people the wrong way in a lot <laughs> That's of a polite way of putting it. Tickle, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I would. I would see again. See, I'm just being careful with my yeah. words. Well, uh, and I would also say, even though I didn't agree with what Janik said about uh, Davey and them, I have bought his PDFs and I bought his HX stomp very recently. So I still am a fan of what he does, just because I don't agree with every single thing he says either. Like I, I still support him. I put, give him my yeah, money. Exactly. Like, and you know, I think that is vital. Like you don't have to agree with everything with everyone. Like for instance, Jeff Berlin's a big advocate of no practice with the metronome. Okay. In a specific context, I've even told you this before or anybody else, like that's not where you go to directly when you learn something mm -hmm. new. And I clarify that you get something new, just get it down under the fingers. And then if the metronome feels like it's going to help clean up your issues, go for it, but don't start there, you know, but I agree with him. But after a certain point, I start to say, yeah, you know what? After a certain point, if you want to advance your level game, your level of rhythm and understand a lot of things and you have a drive and interest for it, you need it. You're going to need it because at the mm -hmm. end of the day, 
the machine that won't falter. You know, it's like I tell people, play with backing tracks as much as you can, if not more than playing with people. If you want to practice playing straight ahead playing, play with the track because the track will never stop playing. The track won't speed up. Mm. It won't slow down. The changes remain. What more do you need? Well, you can't straighten your inner pulse if you're not going to use a metronome or something because your inner pulse will just get worse because you'll be like compounding how bad your timing is by playing without something to fix it. Like, Yeah, because it's like, you know, you you learn something, you practice it, you get the hang of it, and then you want to contextualize it in time. Go for it. Um, would that work all the time? Maybe, maybe not. It really is subjective. It's based on individuals. Like for me, me and a click track, we have good relationship. I just am able to work with clicks quite easily whenever I record or do anything. Um, I didn't necessarily have to sit and practice it, but I use it sometimes to teach certain students. In fact, my mentor in college, um, he would walk into class and he would say, okay, we're going to start at 60 beats per minute. He would turn on the click and he would ask me to play and then he'll just keep pushing the tempo up and down. And then tell me to try to maintain my time. Mm. I remember the first time he did that to me, I was just like, how on earth does this make sense? And he was just like, just try it, just try it. Just get in there. We're going to keep a minute of 60 BPM and then we're just going to go all over the place with the metronome, but you need to stay where you are. So he would do that and come back to 60 just to see how far I've nudged. You know, So I was always about 3 BPM up. So my issue fundamentally lied in my urge to rush through ideas as opposed to dragging mm-hmm. a lot of bass players drag their time and i feel like rushing and dragging is part of the same problem you just are not comfortable enough here in order to play something and sometimes because of lack of translation of that it just comes out wrong or too quick or sounds confusing you know like i've heard some transcriptions when i hear certain phrases and these are solos i know or bass lines I know, I'm like, it shouldn't sound like that. You know, mm-hmm. like when you see any Teen Town cover, it's just like most of them are in a hurry to play the song, if you notice, you know? Yeah. So I'm just get through all the licks. <laughs> yeah, it's like take take your time with it, you know, groove with it. It's a groovy bass line. Mm-hmm. You listen to Jack grooves the hell out of it. But yeah, it's it's so hard for musicians to have a debate. I would use the word debate, because everything turns into an argument. Mm-hmm. You know, one is trying to prove the other wrong or like, oh, no, I'm of the Jeff Berlin school. I'm of this. You know, Paddy Tucci said that or, you know, Cliff Burton did this or Billy Sheehan, you know, um, he's a shredder. He's not a bass player. I mean, man, it's like after a certain point, I'm just like the amount of time you spend into thinking about all these things. If you actually put on your instrument, we won't be having this conversation, you know, <laughs> it's kind of like it's Italians when it comes to food. They can be hilarious. I have a friend. And he he keeps post. He lives in my hometown here in Ireland, but he's from uh, near Rome. Like, and um, he always be putting up things like no pineapple on the pizza, and he's or no egg in or is is it? Oh yeah, no cream in carbonara. And he's like seriously getting pissed off about it. Yeah, it's you know okay. You know I've seen that a lot of times too. You know, like um, with food. Anyone posts, you know, an easy Pad Thai recipe and then you would see all the Thai people. Yeah, but traditionally we don't use this, that, that. It's like, okay, I get it. But first of all, the guy posting didn't ask you. The guy posting also clarifies that this is not traditional. Despite knowing these things, you still do it. That's that's human nature. Like you just have this itch to want to say something even if it's not your place. 
and I believe musicians take it to a whole other level. <laughs> I remember when Chick when Chick Corea passed away. Um, I'm a huge fan of his body of work. Okay, and by that I mean the groups he put together. He had some of the most classic rhythm sections in jazz and fusion. You know, Weckl and Paddy Tucci, um, Paddy Tucci and Vinny, um, or like those kind of combos. Um, and he wrote some great stuff. But I'm not the biggest fan of how he played. Okay, but that doesn't mean I'm trashing the guy. No. But as a on from the point of view of piano, there were other piano players that I emotionally connected with a lot more. But from the work, from the point of view of body of work, I mean, this guy played all the way from Miles Blue Mitchell to all the young generation jazz musicians of today. Mm. That's a huge body of work, decades and decades. You know, longer body of work than some people's lifetime. It's even. kind of like Mingus as well. He's for, exactly. he's remembered more for his compositions than his bass playing, which obviously was on point. But we we kind of remember him for the compositions more. Yeah, the compositions and the way he produced. Like I mean, even the the record Mingus from Joni Mitchell. Yeah, I love produced. that record. Beautiful record. So it's like, you know, it is okay for somebody to be recognized for something else besides what they're primarily recognized for. And it is okay for me or you or anybody to say, yeah, I don't like the way he played or whatever, but I dug what he did. But man, I remember just telling this to one friend and he was just like, how could you say that? You know, he's one of the greatest. I'm like, I'm not saying he's not, but if I don't connect with it, why should I lie? Mm -hmm. you know? I loved Jaco. Because of one thing, one simple thing, it was not the bass playing anything the first time I heard. It was just the fe the the ferocity in his playing. So ferocious. Mm. I love that. Punk jazz, as he put it himself, that's what it is. Like the ethos yeah. of punk, but with jazz music almost. Exactly. And then why did I get in the Coltrane with Elvin Jones? Because I heard the same ferocity in that playing, you know? So it's like... But that's me. That's my vibe. I dig something that's ferocious because I believe music... While okay, it should sometimes it should be mellow or whatever, but it needs to come at you like a wall of sound. That's just my opinion. It, everything doesn't have to be that way, but that's the, my vibe. That's how things resonate with me. So it's like, yeah, it's it's very interesting how lopsided people can get. Because um, I even uh, looked up a thread where a bunch of guys were discussing me doing the brand new heavies. <laughs> that gig. that was a bad idea, probably. <laughs> Look I, I'm glad I did it. Mm. I'm glad I did because there was one guy who was hell bent on thrashing me mm. for not hitting the right notes all the time. Little did he know that I didn't even rehearse with the band. He did not know that I was there just playing as the gig happened until one guy pointed it out. Mm -hmm. And he respectfully bowed out. He's like, okay, I did not have an idea. If that is the case, you know, hats off to him. Are the Day but, Heavies are kind of a blues rock kind of band. Is that the band? Uh, no, they're like an acid jazz funk band. Okay. Um, very tricky gig because no rehearsals, but a lot of the songs have iconic bass lines. So I remembered and memorized as much as I could 13 songs and just went at it. Of course, I'm bound to make mistakes. No rehearsal, just one hour sound check. So for somebody to go all out to judge me on one video I posted off a gig where I clearly state like, hey, I got a call at two in the afternoon and I, next thing I know I'm sound checking at four with the brand new heavies and then 9pm I played with them. Their bass player wasn't around. Is that what happened? You just, the gig yeah. just... Yeah, he couldn't make the flight. So they landed <laughs> in Dubai. They were looking for a bass player. They were trying to fly guys in from London and they were just like, hey, there's Anthony in Dubai. Get him. 
So when I got on, I realized there were no charts. So they just made scratch charts, which are just not legible. But it just worked, whatever it was. Yeah. And I, and I just gave it my all. Because at the end of the day, I realized, you know what? There's no way I can nail this, but I can at least nail the energy. And that's exactly what I did. And I guaranteed them that. I said, I will give you your vibe. I'll give you your groove. My notes could get off, but you got to give me some wiggle room. And they were like, yeah, of course. But then on this forum, five pages of just me being trashed, I'm just like, okay, this is very interesting because clearly this person hasn't read into the whole story. Mm-hmm. And a few other people are like, yeah, but you know, he's more of a fusion player, so his note choices can be weird. I'm like, that doesn't even make sense. you know. <laughs> it's, uh, I'm not going to go do a pop gig and hit a sharp 11 on a C major. Mm. You know, maybe you're on fire, you work, and then I'm hitting tritones. Like, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> I might play fusion or whatever, but I yeah. know how fundamentally... Mm. Yeah, exactly how the bass works. But the assumption that they went with, looked at the rest of my channel, oh, he's shredding over giant steps. Yeah, he's a fusion guy. His groove is off. This, that, yada, yada, yada. And then one guy says, hey, he didn't have a rehearsal. He just did the gig, literally. And then they're like, okay, they all backed off. That surprised me because I was surprised that they actually just ended the thread there because in my previous experience, they would have just kept going with it. You know, mm-hmm. so I think, yeah, it's, it's, I wish musicians were more open-minded, but I think it is literally wishful thinking for them to. It's where are we like that. It's weird. Like, it's not, it's not like it's politics or something. It, it, you can be on both sides of the fence. You can love jazz music and pop music or any, there's no, the spectrum. You can listen to the whole spectrum of music and that's quite normal. Like it's strange that we're like that. Yeah. I, I it's. I think you know what I would I would if I had to pick on something I think it would be the culture of how everything requires a label these days in terms of he's a that guy he's a this guy this dude does that she does this cuz you look at old interviews of how like even say Jaco you know when he did the modern electric bass video and he's talking about bass players that have influenced them the names the record names or the radio hits that he picks out they're so diverse because I think back then, people just didn't have the time to sit and compartmentalize this as being that or, mm-hmm. you know, Rocco. I mean, Rocco Prestia, rest his soul. I mean, the guy played a gazillion notes on every song, but not even once anyone said he overplayed. Yeah. But you try to pull that off now on a funk geek, people be like, man, you got to play the bass, bro. You got to play to the kick, bro. It's like, but... There's a whole era. The Motown era is an era of bass playing at a peak in yeah. terms of overplaying. It's, it's filling in all all the gaps in, in mo- like yeah. that type of bass playing. It's, there's yeah. very there is space left, but it's completely different to what what is happening these days. Yeah, it's very completely um, the space left in those days is like. It's for you to hear it if it's there or not. If you don't hear it, okay. If you hear it, great. You can still work with it. You try to apply that today. People just say, oh, you overplay or you don't have a good pocket. You need to. F- you feel the urge to play more because you are not comfortable playing less. And there's just so many things I've been thrown at in the past, you know, and I'm just like, okay, you know, if that's how you think. But it's it's very it's definitely very peculiar with the drums and bass these two communities in particular because from a functional point of view it's the simplest thing but it's the most crucial at the same time you know like i always see these videos of um you know i i it's like i told 
people based on my last couple of lessons ago I was talking about this you know you talk about Hadrian for all nobody's going to think of him as a guy laying down baselines why because the internet doesn't allow it mm. every damn video of Hadrian is him soloing is is he posting it? no he's not the one going yeah. around saying hey, Oh my chops it's everybody else and these same people say he can't groove it's like I saw one where he actually is backing up coincidentally it's at Nam, and he was just um, what's that Italian guy who's like ferocious on the bass as well Rico Malaman yeah yeah not Davy the other famous Italian yeah. bass player <laughs> and um, he, he, Adrian was doing the backup and it sounded really nice obviously and I know everyone should know he can play that stuff as well like yeah, I mean, there's, there's records and recordings of him where he's just playing bass his way, but just what the music needs. But nobody's willing to talk about that because that is not impressive. And then what is impressive apparently is not good because the unimpressive stuff doesn't matter. So it's just like, this is never-ending loop, basically. It's you know, immaturity, it's- really, when it comes to these things. Like I was yeah. completely closed-minded growing up. I was like... Well, first it was just, you know, metal, rock, and then I had my little jazz period, and I was like, everything else is crap. But you're supposed to grow out of that when you're not a teenager anymore, and then just be open to all the ideas. Yeah, and you know, it's it's very difficult to open your mind to this, to be able to accept differences and be okay with it, and also know what's right from wrong in your light or your point of view versus why somebody would look at you a certain way. And it's very important to not allow your ego to get affected in all of this because, you know, it's it's like my number one tip for growth in life, and I learned this from my mentor, is just the ability to accept shortcomings and strengths, mm-hmm. you know. He always clarified that to me. Like, for instance, one of the things he told me in the past, this is after I learned Donna Lee, right? Been playing bass for a year and a half. I learned Donna Lee. I killed it. And then he's like, you know, I want you to imagine this, a beautiful stream in a river. I'm out for a swim. I'm surrounded by beautiful fish. And then out of nowhere, we all hit a dam. Just out of nowhere, there's a dam there. And then boom, everyone hits head first and dies. And then he looks at me, he's like, you're the dam. And I'm just like, what? He's like, yeah, you just don't know how to flow with what you're playing. And I was just like... Imagine you're 18, 19, you yeah. hear this shit, you'd be like, man, no. <laughs> Screw this guy, I'm never no. coming back to these lessons. <laughs> Screw you, man. Screw you, old guy, you know. And he was this old Chinese guy. So he's got this very, you know, Kung Fu Master-esque kind of mm. energy, the way he said it to me. I was just like, man, it hurt so bad to hear those <laughs> words. But then he gave me a solution. He's like, hey, I want you to record alongside Jaco. And then listen to it with that when I did that that's when I was just like oh right okay everything was down my technique my execution my rhythm mm. my time feel even the no choices but just the way it all came together was not coming together and he knew me he knows the kind of person I am that if he told me yeah it's not coming together I'd be like oh yeah okay whatever but he just knew how to hit me how to really tickle the right spot of my ego to get me to go do the work. Mm. Now that's me. If I try pulling this stunt with all my other students, it's not going to work. Probably that most of them will leave because we're all sensitive, right? At the end of the day, we're all emotional beings. So because of him, I learned to understand that sometimes you need to be aggressive. Sometimes you can't. Sometimes it's best not to say a thing and let 
anyone else figure it out for themselves so it's like it's a constant learning curve which i think is never ending not just in music but in life too you know so i guess ultimately musicians are just if human beings are emotional musicians take that to the next level mm-hmm. yeah well it's it's the nature of it isn't it it's like the vocation we chose like we we, we live and die by our music you know Mm-hmm. Well, let, let's talk about basses, Anthony, because I want to get on to the, some bass talk before we finish up. Um, you're you're well known for playing a white square jazz, and mm-hmm. you get asked a lot of questions about this because you do these really cool um, Q&As on Instagram. You should save them, actually, and put them up for people to look at after because uh, you get asked a lot of questions. But I'd say a lot of them are just, what is the square bass? Uh, have you modded it and all this stuff? Um and now you're playing this other bass, a five string, which I don't know what about. So, so could you tell us a bit about your, well, your famous white square and how it originated? Oh, he's going for it. There she is. Yeah. And then your new bass, which I don't even know the name, the brand or anything. So here comes the new bass. So uh, the shape, it's funny. I never thought I'd see Anthony play a bass that looked comfortable on him, apart from his white square. But th- uh, this one is your style. It's 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 awesome. I love the shape. Yeah, it's um, definitely suits my vibe a lot, and um, that was the idea behind building it anyway. You know, because um, I wanted a five that worked with my hands and my sound overall. But this is built by Tom Marciu from France. I mm. hope you can see. Is it that. his shape or did you make the shape? Oh, it's his shape. Um, it's one of his standard model shapes, a single cut. And then, uh, yeah, just chose, went with the different wood combination mm. here. Um, a mahogany top and maple body, which is kind of the opposite of what a lot of these bases usually have. And then the mahogany um, neck as well and maple mm-hmm. fingerboard. So it kind of has by default quite a bright sound to it. Um, but not the harsh kind where you hear the strings and the mids are quite balanced. Um, It's passive, is it? I see it only has one knob and a little toggle switch. Oh, it has other stuff. I can't see the rest of the things now. That's the volume. That's the pickup um, switch, tone knob. And then this is the volume for the piezo. So I have a piezo here as well. And why didn't you go active? You're not into that sound. I'm I'm not into active basses. I just... I don't like the way I sound with them. I feel like I'm unable to control it, especially when I'm recording, because I like to record as clean as I can. Um, so I just have one little preamp here, and then that's it, DI right into my interface. So that's how I recorded the bass on the, the record, you know? So I feel like with active basses, there's a little too much to work with, a little too boomy for my taste. I mean, I know some of my favorite bass players, actually most of them play active basses, so it's like... It works for them, but for me, it just didn't feel comfortable. Yeah. So yeah, this is um, this was a long time in the making, mm. and uh, hard to step away from your famous white square. Like considering it sounds awesome, and I'm a geek, so I know it's a stock. I'll I'll tell them what it is because you're sick of telling people it's a stock square, <laughs> but he replaced the bridge. <laughs> I think that's right. That is exactly right. This is the the Lee Kwan Badass, the original three-screw bridge, uh, which is not standard on jazz basses because usually you would have five. So 
yeah, when I got this installed, we actually had to cut out that portion of the base and take it out and replace it. Um, but everything is stock. I don't even know what these pickups are. Um, but it's it's funny because I, I actually borrowed this from a friend of mine, a good friend of mine, guitar player. It was never and going back after you got your hands on it. Yeah, because it's funny because I took this to one lesson and my mentor was like, yeah, you got to stick with that bass. There's something about it. And I was just like, and at that time, I had a Fudera Metroline 5. Jesus, the that's some price of a bass, like anything with Fudera on it. Uh, sorry, not Fudera, Sadowski, my bad. Oh, okay, still a nice high-end bass, though. Exactly. I had a Sadowski Metroline 5, and then I had um, Yamaha JM2, the John Myung, mm. uh, defender. Then I started playing this, but I also switched to this because of my injury, so I had to stop playing extended range for a, for a bit. So... Yeah, I started using this bass and I just fell in love with it and I still love it. I didn't use it on all the tracks on the new record. I used it on about three of them maybe. But I only did that because those few songs that I used it on, I heard the jazz bass sound a lot more than anything else. And the other tunes, I was look, I needed the low B. I needed a few characteristics that I could get out of this bass. So that's the idea behind even having the second bass. Because some, again, the comments would come, you know, hey, your squire is better than this. <laughs> or this sounds different. I, the, my favorite one is this sounds different from the squire. I'm like, yeah. Mm. It's a different that's, bass. That's <laughs> different bass. And that's the idea. What's yeah. the point in having the second one that sounds identical to the first, you know? So, yeah, these are my main bases. I think what I'm missing is a P. I won't definitely want to buy a P mm. bass. I've got the square P. I got it in a charity shop. Where is it? Oh, it's here. It's actually right beside me. <laughs> right yeah, and, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's just put Seymour Duncan's in it that's it like and um, love it absolutely awesome yeah so uh, I'm planning to pick up a, a Squire P as well and um, then uh, definitely a fretless which I I think I might actually end up building again with Tom mm-hmm. probably the same specs as my did you do a lot five. of searching online till you found that guy in France because I, I never heard of him so he actually found me on Facebook about five years ago. And when I looked up his uh, brand, they are not, they're a small time company, which I dig because there's a lot of attention to detail, you know? And one of the first things I wanted was for him to take his time. Just, I'm in no rush. And he built bases for Hadrian in the past and a few other French bass players. These, those guys, you know, who are of the African origin, the Cameroonians, the Ghanians who are in France, they have mm-hmm. this particular sound which I always dug. And then I found out he built bases for a few of them. So he reached out to me. We were talking. And uh, at the time, I, I spent about six months just researching different kinds of wood. And that's when I came to the conclusion of maple and mahogany, which is quite a classic combination. But yeah. then I just flipped it around. So when I flipped it around, even he was just like, I'm not sure how's that going to work, you know, because he's mm-hmm. never done it. And I said, just just, just trust me on this because I, I know what I'm going for in that regard. So once he was done and he tested it himself, he's like, okay, I, I get why you went for that, you know? So when I plugged it in, it was just perfect. It's just so very well balanced, very crisp. In fact, the, the track you mentioned, Transition, the chords, I was using the bridge pickup plus the piezo on that track. Mm. That's what gives it the woody sound. Yeah. It's not it's tone or highs. So the piezo really plays a huge role in uh, making it feel warm because, I mean, it is acoustic in nature, so... Yeah, these are my two main bases, and um, hopefully I'll have a few more down the road. 
Yeah, no, well, you don't take your time, you know, get the ones you really like. <laughs> Think about the fretless a lot. Will will you stick with the five strings then you're, when you're going forward now or do you like to switch between the five and the four? Depends on my need for it. Um, but as of now, I'm going with the five a lot more because uh, I think tonally speaking, it's a little more versatile because when I use the bridge pickup, it doesn't sound like a jazz bass, for instance, or the neck pickup. It doesn't give a P emulation. It just sounds different. It's got a different character. So I'm going more. I mean, the last few gigs that I've done or recordings, I've been using the five. Um, it's always nice to have access to the lobby, at least for what I do. But, um, yeah, the four, I think I'm just going to leave it the way it is. I'm just going to let these strings stay on for as long as I can. Keep Get a nice, thumpy, mm. dead sound. So, yeah, I just... Ideally, maybe somewhere down the road, I might just buy a double gig bag. Yeah, fire it into it. Cool. Yeah, why not? Well, before we finish up, I, I suppose a lot of people watching this, you're very well known for your your ferocious bass technique and um, we covered a bit of your bass journey so what what kind of stuff should people be doing to kind of maybe get to somewhere near your level it's just practice I suppose or running scales or transcribing songs or there's no shortcut obviously I'd say uh, there is none but what what would you say to people who are because they watch your channel they see you playing and what really comes out is how clean you play the bass the note you've got a very good technique what kind of stuff should people be working on to maybe get get on that road themselves? Like, I I think um, to make some kind of visual connection with the way your fingers move around the neck. Okay, um, so this is something I I've um, done a lot. In fact, when I moved and started to live with my brother years ago, he found it strange. So one of the things that I tell people is to practice in front of a mirror. Um, which is very peculiar because why would you do that, right? But the visual perspective you have from a reflection is far greater than what you look down into. Because you could, your fingers might look like they're moving pretty flowy and smoothly, but your reflection will tell you otherwise. You know. So for me, the number one trick is really learning to keep my hands on the instrument as much as possible. You know, it's just like. Um, What's his face with his punch? Bruce Lee, right? Mm. How are you going to get the most impact? Is it from me coming full force swinging or just having that focus and attention as to where I'm going to hit you? Mm. So the same principle applies here. Whether it's speed or clarity or whatever, there's you need the uniformity of your fingers. You know, you look at cats like Hadrian as well and all those other players, their fingers look so uniform. And I think that's a huge part of that sound. You know, and then at the same time, you want to talk ferocious and speed. You look at Billy Sheehan. As much as it looks like he's got a bit of flying fingers, it's still very uniform the way it moves. Mm -hmm. You know, so I think that is something. Again, it has nothing to do with bass or technique. It's literally visual, just for you to be able to look at yourself from the other That's side. A new take on it. I've never, heard, I haven't heard anyone say that before. Like, so. <laughs> That's interesting. Yeah, because I. I started to notice some shortcomings in my playing when I started doing that. You know, just I had my webcam open. I'd just be practicing. I'd be like, yeah, when I want to hit something with my pinky, I would hit it. But then my first finger comes flying out, like those kind of small things. Mm -hmm. And then really fix that nice and slow, take it slow. And then for speed, the ultimate way to build speed is to just try playing fast. Once you know what you want to play fast, you know. But again, just having 
a visual cue as to how your technique is, whether it's sound or not, is quite um, important in my opinion. Yeah. Cool. Uh, well, cheers for coming on. Uh, I, guess, I guess people check. Where do you hang out mainly? You mainly it's YouTube and Instagram. They're your your two spots, is it? Yeah, YouTube, Instagram, and Facebook. Yeah. Cool, man. Cheers for coming on, and uh, hopefully you'll get to tour your own album. Probably not twenty twenty one, but twenty twenty two. Get to Europe, do a yeah. tour. I think by the time I get to tour, my third record will be out. So we'll see. <laughs> we'll see what happens. <laughs> hey, that's good. Though. Keep 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 pushing. You know, keep it lit. Keep coming out. Absolutely, man. Thanks. Cheers.